God sent his son born of a woman. When is the last time Christmas surprised you? I don't mean snuck up on you because you didn't see it coming. You were behind an Amazon. I mean, when is the last time the story of Christmas, the meaning of it, stumped you, shocked you, surprised you? When our kids were small, we struggled with this early. We would read the story every year on the couch and first we would read it from a child's book and then we'd read it from the scripture and then we'd try to memorize it and then we'd try to act it out and by the time they're six or seven you can only do that so many times and if you haven't noticed the Christmas story hasn't changed in like maybe 2,000 years, and so you find yourself with children, no, no, wait a minute, this year we'll let Ashley be the donkey and Nick be Mary? (laughs) So you have have, uh, an eight-year-old riding a four-year-old. That's an accident. Finally, I decided uh, when they were Uh, about that age that the only way to do this would be to try and create quizzes. And so, I mean, I actually wrote quizzes for my kids at Christmas time. I remember putting a picture of the nativity in front of the kids and say, look at that picture. What's wrong with that picture? There's something shouldn't be in there. What is it? I'd put down a, a list of characters, say five, six different characters like Mary and uh, like um, uh, uh, Simeon and the wise men, the shepherds, and I would say, arrange these characters in chronological order. I would take Old Testament passages from Isaiah and I would try to line them up with the New Testament stories and say, now is that one from Matthew 2 or is that one from Luke 2? Man, I was desperate. I remember by the time they were seven years old, we had done even the quizzes. Now I looked at Lori and just went, "Mm, man, I'm out. I'm out. I don't know how to surprise these kids, these religious kids anymore. When is the last time Christmas surprised you? Doesn't go away when you're an adult. You struggle with what C.S. Lewis called the horror of the same old thing. You start reading it, and because you know how it's going to end, you think you know it. Every year now, since I read it some years ago, I begin uh, my preparation for Advent by reminding myself what Barry Marshall, the Nobel-winning scientist, said in 2005 in his acceptance speech. He said, the greatest obstacle to knowledge is not ignorance. It's the illusion of knowledge. When you think you know something, you can't learn it. You can't run into it anymore. Trip over it. It can't surprise you.
if you think you know Christmas, you haven't thought about it lately. One of the best ways to be surprised by a familiar story is to look for the ironies. Irony occurs when something unexpected happens that not only contradicts your expectations, it defies your expectations, almost mocks them. When something ironic happens in a story, it causes you to step back and go, wait a minute, what did I see? What did I think? What did I know? What was I sure was true a moment ago? Now it didn't turn out that way. If the Christians are right about Christmas, that in Christmas, not only was Jesus born, but God was revealed in his fullness. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Yes? Is that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the same was with God in the beginning. In him, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He himself is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. If the Christians are right about Christmas, it reveals not only that Jesus is God, it reveals that God is Jesus. And therein lies the irony. Because if God is Jesus, then the way he comes to us at Christmas is not the way that we would expect. Aaron covered the first irony last week when he talked about how is it that the Holy One who is born of God should come from such a suspicious, even scandalous origin as he did? He has characters in his lineage that shouldn't be there if God is the whole. He has a prostitute. He has an adulterer. He has an egotistical king. How did all of that get into the lineage of the Holy One from God? In other words, the way to put it is, there isn't anything you have done, any of you, ever in your life that is not in his lineage. He is not ashamed of you. You might be ashamed of yourself, but he is not ashamed of you. So whatever else holiness means, it doesn't mean separation from people who are unholy. Mm. Holiness walks boldly into places that are unholy, and it lives there and takes it on. You see what I'm talking about? 
That is not the way he should come. I'm interested this morning in the second irony of Christmas, and that is in the vulnerability of God. How is it that a God who is all-powerful should come like this? It's hard for us to get our minds around. When we think of, of God, we read these passages in the Old Testament, something like Psalm chapter 2 that said, the one who is enthroned in heaven laughs at the kings who ally themselves against them. And he says to the kings, kiss the son lest his wrath should come upon you. Mm, now that's a God to believe in. The God we read there is the one who takes on Pharaoh so that Pharaoh may know who is truly God. This is the God who kills 100,000 Assyrians in one night in the desert while they're waiting to pounce on the holy city. It's the God who opens up the earth with its mouth and swallows by the thousands the Korahites because they're angry with Moses. It's the God who sends the bears to eat the children who were laughing at the bald prophet. Love that story. Now, there is a God you can get behind. It's the God you need. You would say, uh, I'm not, um, I'm sorry, I'm not violent like that. Well, let me help you find that place. Have you ever been threatened, bullied, abandoned, oppressed? Have you ever wanted God to come in? I've prayed it a thousand times, you guys, and roll up his sleeves and rise up in defense of the holy. Of course you have, or you ain't lived long enough. You ever worked for somebody who abused power, or they abused you? They took advantage of people that were weak and depressed, and you thought to yourself, hmm, someday there will come a judgment and I wish it would come today. You ever had those thoughts? Christian, yes? That's a God you can follow, the Alpha. And then? Christmas. By the time Christmas gets here, and you have all of these references that you've read in the Old Testament, Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he wants. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is in the Lord's hand. He steers it like a river wherever he wants it to go. 
Job said, Lord, we know that no plan of yours can be thwarted in Job 42, verse 2. And so when you pick up the Christmas story and you start reading it, you start thinking to yourself, <laughs> it's payday. Now the rent comes due on all of the injustice that the world has suffered, that I've suffered for all of this time. And what you get is something exactly the opposite. And therein lies the irony. Two stories tell us this same idea. One is in Luke chapter 2. The next is in Matthew chapter 2. You heard them read a moment ago. I'll retell them quickly. In Luke chapter 2, the first person that is mentioned in the narrative of Jesus's birth is neither Joseph nor Mary nor shepherds. It's a Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus who was crowned Augustus in 27 BC by the Roman Senate whom he formed. And the name Augustus means revered one, venerated one. And Augustus' birth is declared by the Romans themselves to be, quote unquote, the gospel. <laughs> you can see a fight coming. They were calling him Lord. Some thought he was anointed. So, so, so when Jesus is born, you're expecting this conflict. It's a conflict between an emperor and the king of the Jews. It's a conflict between two different gospels, between two anointed ones. And what you get instead is a family that is summoned to Bethlehem by the emperor's, oh, wait for it, government mandate. <laughs> you ever complained about one of those? <laughs> and in those days, there went out a decree that all of the Roman world would take a census. Wait for it because the government wants more money and we have to pay taxes. Now would be a good time for God to rise up and say, hmm, not in my world. What happens is he loads up himself in the third trimester of a teenage girl and puts her on the back of a donkey and they ride 80 to 90 miles to Bethlehem. So wait for it. The sovereign one who rules the earth can render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. What on earth is he doing? In the second scene, Jesus is born. He's been alive about a year. He's in a house in Bethlehem. 
when all of a sudden magi come from eight, nine hundred miles away, they come into Jerusalem and they start asking, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? We've seen a star and the star is his star. And when Herod, who is the king of the Jews, hears about this, he's already a brick short of a load. He's now upset. He considers this a threat against his own kingdom. So he says to them, find out where this child is to be born so that I may go mm, worship him too. But in mind, he has it to kill him. The Magi are not aware of this. And so they trot off looking for the house in Bethlehem. Oddly enough, Instead of protecting him, God moves the star until it's over the house. Now's a good time for the sovereign one in heaven to hide. But he doesn't. He leads the magi to the house where the child is laying. They come into the room. Mary's oblivious to all of this. They bow before him. They open their treasures, and before they leave, that's when God intervenes and says, don't go back. He has intentions to kill them. And so they leave by another route. And then that night, Joseph has a dream, and God says to Joseph, if you can believe it, Herod is looking to kill the child take him and move into Egypt. So now the one who is obeying a government mandate is running from Herod's threat. Are you seeing the problem here? If he is the sovereign one from heaven, when is he going to come down and roll up his sleeves and take care of business? And it occurs to you, in Christmas, God is revealing to the world his power. But it's not what power looks like. You see, your problem with these stories, or mine anyway, is not with God. It's my problem with power. In Christmas, God reveals his power to the world, but it is not like any power you've seen. Indeed, church, it is not like the power you've been seeking yourselves. It's a different kind of power. In Christmas, God is sovereign, and yet he is vulnerable. In Christmas, the God who is revealed in Jesus is ruling, but not from a throne. He draws people to himself, but not by his appearance and not by his charisma. He takes care of things, but he takes too long. In Christmas, 
God enters the problem instead of crushing it. And he grows up inside of the problem instead of eliminating it. And he takes on all that is wrong with the world. So, so, so in Christmas, he doesn't just cast out the evil. He enters the evil and builds something else, something that lasts in the end. In Christmas, he enters injustice and he is not himself a victim. He is ruled by Rome, but he is not the servant of Rome. He remains the servant of God. He yields himself to every impulse that the tyrants have, and yet he gives himself to a narrative that is bigger than the tyrants, and when it grows, it will dismantle what the tyrants have built, but he will do it slowly from the inside. He lets death swallow him whole. And then when it has, he detonates life. <laughs> now let me tell you why that's so important. I think the church right today is, is uh, divided over issues that lean to the left or to the right. And uh, depending on your leaning, uh, you listen to your causes but you often ignore or at least downplay the seriousness of the others. Both sides believe that something is at stake. Both sides believe the other is bad for the nation. And churches are splitting over this. But... Secretly, I wonder, you guys, if the real fight is not over freedom or morality or equality. Those are more acceptable words. I wonder if the struggle is over power. I wonder if both sides in our country and, yes, in our churches are seeking the wrong kind of power. It is a power that either on the one hand protests, fights back, counterattacks, or on the other hand, it retreats, withdraws, abandons, and cancels. But it is not a power that enters the other person's predicament and lives there. Have you 
Well, it seems to me that for a long time, religious people like us have been working on our convictions. We've been working on our dispositions, I mean, on our positions. But have you ever wondered if it's our disposition that is actually on trial? It is not our convictions. Whatever those convictions are, it is the way that we live and express those convictions in the relentless pursuit of power. While gathering in the name of one who surrendered his rights, all of them. We have in our minds sometimes as religious people that if we are right about something, we can draw a line, dig in our heels, and refuse to comply, whatever that is. If we see in the leader an inconsistency, and yes, there are some, it, we think it gives us the right to just withdraw from any kind of loyalty at all because we are guided by our arguments rather than by the spirit who is in us. As Jesus said, you know not what spirit you are of. So this week, I stumbled across um, a new word for me, um, and that word is gelassenheit. Like, yeah. oh, let me write that down. Gelassenheit, I learned that it it goes at least as far back in Christian spirituality as the 13th century in the writings of Meister Eckert in the 14th century in John Towler, 15th century in Thomas Kempis, in the 16th century in the Anabaptists, and that's where I found it. In this idea of Gelassenheit, there is a union of two things. There is a union of a peaceful and calm spirit and at the same time, a tenacious spirit. There is surrender and there is stubbornness in the same spirit. There is, as Jordan said a moment ago, a patient waiting and yet there is an active preparation for it. There is a relinquishment of my rights and at the same time, a desire to make things right again. And they live in the same spirit. When a person occupies this space, they tell us, they meet God in the deep part of their being and up from that place rises their convictions and they begin with self-denial. So I have begun to wonder if we need a different kind of power. Christians will kill for their beliefs. We know this but will they die for them? The way into this place, they taught me 
was to let go, let be, let come, and let God. To let go is the opposite of taking over, taking charge, control. To let be is the opposite of manipulation, chastening people, hurrying people. To let come is the opposite of resisting it, arguing with it, counter-offering with it. And to let God is more than permission. To let God is to find what God is trying to do, sometimes through people we don't even like, and to cooperate with it, make room for it, nurture it, support it, align ourselves with it. (laughs) Who is it that threatens you today? Who bothers you? Who's wrong if they only knew it? Who bullies you? Who is your injustice? Surrender. And let God.